Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented on the 11th of October, 2018, by Professor John Sullivan, Emeritus Professor at Liverpool Hope University, as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series. The lecture is entitled Communication and Cultural Change, Catholic Contributions from Marshall McLuhan and Walter Ong. I think when Paul originally said you must come over and, and, and give a talk, I think he had in mind, actually, that I would speak to the book which came out in the spring, um, The Christian Academic in Higher Education, The Consecration of Learning. Incidentally, Rick, The Consecration of Learning is the title that I gave the book. The publishers, in their wisdom, decided that had to be the subtitle, um, not, the, not the title. Um, but thank you for saying you like the, like the subtitle. That's my favourite. I decided instead, though, that I wanted to share with you an extract from a chapter in the next book, which uh, Rick kindly said something about. Um, this book, Lights for the Path, is based on an assumption which experience tells me is true, though some of you may wish to dispute it. The assumption is that very many of the teachers in Catholic schools and universities actually don't know much about the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Uh, I hope that's not an arrogant assumption, but that is my experience across many different disciplines. So the book is not being written for theologians. It's being written for a teacher of any discipline, both in schools and universities that wear the Catholic label. And I'm doing it through identifying a few key figures and not the usual suspects. So this book does not deal with Augustine and Aquinas and Maritain and Lonergan and Newman and, and other such huge figures. I've written about several of them and there are many fine books about each of those and others. I'm going to write about Maximus the Confessor in the Undivided Church, Hildegard of Bingen in the 12th century, Bonaventure in the 13th, a Spanish humanist contemporary of Erasmus, Juan Luis Vives, in the 16th century, and then some 20th century writers like Edith Stein, Teilhard de Chardin, Marguerite Lena. Um, Paolo Freire, Charles Taylor, and uh, I think probably oh, the, the poet Elizabeth Jennings, and, and the two we're going to focus on. I'm assuming no prior knowledge whatsoever of the two thinkers, so if you are an expert, probably this is the time to leave. I'll just have my copy of the handout so I can occasionally say this is where we're up to. Theologians commonly concern themselves with truths and principles and beliefs, and they examine 
the interconnections and implications of these principles and truths and beliefs. But rarely do they take into account the physical senses through which we engage the world or the bodily dimensions of teaching and learning the faith. They often seem to take for granted the media and the technology via which we receive and transmit religious faith, failing to attend to the effects of technological change on how a tradition is experienced. And in this paper, I'm going to introduce some key insights from two Catholic professors of English literature who made remarkable and prophetic contributions to our understanding of how deeply we're influenced by the communication media we use. And these are the devout Canadian layman, Marshall McLuhan, who lived from 1911 to 1980, and the American Jesuit priest, Walter Ong, who lived from 1912 to 2003. My aim is to indicate their continuing importance for how we read and respond to the world. In part one, I'm simply going to make some comments about technological change and its effects on culture. Then in part two, I'm going to open up um, some biographical information about each of these two figures. In part three, I'm going to pick out a small number of key themes from their work. And in part four, suggest some major implications for Christians, and in particular Catholic Christians, of the thought of each of these thinkers before ending with some part five with some brief conclusions. I feel a bit of a fraud, to tell you the truth, because I'm speaking about two thinkers that have contributed massively to our understanding of media and communications, and yet I have to confess that I am closer to Johannes Gutenberg than to Mark Zuckerberg, um, so I feel a bit, a bit of a fraud. But I do think these thinkers are important, uh, whether or not we're au fait with all the latest technology ourselves. So I'm going to have a go. Okay, so section one. More than a generation ago, the cultural and religious thinker Walter Ong pointed out how changes in the communication media we use in society alter the balance within what he called the sensorium. That is the relative attention we give to seeing, <coughs> hearing, touching, tasting, and speaking in our engagement with the world around us. Changes in the communication media employed by people affect not only our language, but our perceptions and our thinking, our modes of reasoning and valuing. The rapid development of new and increasingly more sophisticated communication technologies has an impact on our understanding of knowledge, and it modifies how we think about personal identity, self-expression, social conventions, community, authority, 
and our perception of moral norms. The ways we read and respond to the world are shifting as we shift our communication media. And religious faith is inevitably influenced <clears throat> by the cumulative effect of all these unforeseen consequences of technological change. Our thinking, our habits, our imagination, our desires, our priorities, and the people we're in touch with are all affected by technology. Technology changes the storyline of society in several ways. It significantly adds to the sheer number of stories to which we have access. It loosens our connection to traditional reference points for the stories we inherit. It modifies how we encounter stories, for example, beyond face-to-face -face encounters and listening to elders, to sources and agencies with which we do not enjoy a direct and ongoing relationship or holistic reinforcement experiences. The specialist in the philosophy and ethics of information, Luciano Floridi, refers to the infosphere, our informational environment, key elements of which include, among others, cloud computing, smartphone apps, tablets and touchscreens, and GPS, as well as identity theft, online courses, and social media, all of which have become environmental, anthropological, social, and interpretive forces, forces which cumulatively work together in such a way as to modify pervasively, profoundly, and relentlessly how we relate to each other and interpret our world. In a striking comment, Floridi observes that we grew up with cars, buildings, furniture, clothes, and all kinds of gadgets and technologies that were non-interactive, irresponsive, and incapable of communicating, learning, or memorizing. But this is no longer the case. Increasingly and inexorably, everything around us seems to be interactive and mutually responsive, so that in terms of information, even if not in terms of emotional bonding, we are totally connected. According to Floridi, information and communication technologies have affected our understanding of what it is to be real. Where once it was thought that to be real meant to be unchangeable, therefore only God is as is real being, then it was to be real was to be capable of being perceived by the senses. But through the impact of information and communication technologies, to be real is to be something we can interact with, even if that is transient and virtual, rather than real in the concrete sense. And Christians are not immune from the changes in the information and communication environment. They're inescapably influenced by what surrounds them, both in what they think is plausible and in how they express what is dear to them. They must face the challenge of evaluating and working out the implications for their mission of the various new features 
of our communication environment, whatever term one finds most helpful. Hypermedia, the infosphere, the hive, connectivity, or the information matrix. They need to be alert to how communication media are shaping our environment in its multiple dimensions, cognitive, economic, political, social, cultural, moral, and even physical. Now, of course, neither McLuhan nor Ong lived to see the effects of the digital revolution. But I think they saw enough to be alert, to, to alert us, to take seriously the ambivalent powers of our own inventions. So I come to part two, biographies. Marshall McLuhan was a fertile and provocative thinker. A university professor in the USA and Canada, he spent most of his academic career based at St. Michael's College, a Catholic institution that was part of the Secular University of Toronto. Before that, teaching at Assumption College in Windsor, Ontario. He became a Catholic in 1937. Remember, he was born in 1911. And from then on, he attended Mass on a regular basis, usually daily. Marshall was a person who was up between 4 and 5 a.m. every day, reading scripture in different languages. He said doing this before breakfast was rather like having different cameras on the same action. I'm not sure what his wife, whom he married in 1939, and with whom he had six children, made of this discipline of rising at 4 a.m. Um, in later years, he, he suffered a brain tumour, surgery, a heart attack, and a major stroke from which he never recovered. It so happened that Marshall McLuhan was teaching at St. Louis University between 1937 and 1944, when the Jesuit, Walter Ong, was a student for a while. So Marshall McLuhan was a teacher of Walter Ong. McLuhan's range of reference was huge. He made connections between anthropology, history, literature, philosophy, and psychology, as well as dipping into other disciplines. Also wide was his circle of interlocutors, which included people from a wide range of disciplines and roles and cultural contexts. He was interdisciplinary in his refusal to compartmentalize knowledge before this became an acceptable academic practice. In this respect, he reflected the medieval and Renaissance scholars in whose work he was steeped. McLuhan had an increasingly eclectic and idiosyncratic writing style. Like G.K. Chesterton, he deploys language that is pithy, provocative, and playful, using broad generalizations that sometimes slip into stereotypes that can be contested, but which contain profound, if awkward and uncomfortable truth. I would say that his thought is suggestive rather than definitive. It remains unfinished. It requires completion. It needs to be filled out and related to other insights. Its assessment of the gains and losses 
brought about by technological developments needs to be updated, though these do not, I think, invalidate many of his major insights and observations. He was strong on an unsubstantiated assertion, but weak on arg in argument. He consistently jumped from one topic to another, not always being careful about coherence. His use of, he did all this after he's got his doctorate, of course. He couldn't get away with it at that level. His use of terminology could be confusing. For example, what he had to say about hot and cool media. He conveys the sense that he was more concerned with creating an impression and to stir people up than to be fully convincing. There is a tendency in his work to offer oversimplifications. For example, at one point he claimed that printing was the direct and apparently single cause of the rise of nationalism, the desire for privacy and individualism. He didn't live to see personal computers, Facebook, texting, YouTube, Skype, Twitter, Netflix, Google, Yahoo, iPhones and iPads, or the technology that allows us to save our thoughts on e-clouds. Often mistakenly assumed to be a techno-utopian, he in fact lamented many of the developments he wrote about. He is a writer and speaker who provokes one into thought, even if this thought is via disagreement. I wish he had engaged theology more directly and more frequently, rather than seeming to assume after his conversion that his theological ideas were now sorted and settled and could simply be assumed. For a person who made such an issue of the message that is being conveyed by the media we use, he seems to have given little thought to deepening and developing his religious thought in order to reach up to the needs of the times, to use a phrase of Lonergan's. But the French Catholic philosopher Etienne Gilson, a specialist in medieval thought, an erudite commentator on the whole range of Western philosophy, classical, medieval, modern and contemporary, told a group of students in Canada that in his view, McCohen was a genuine genius. A generation after that assessment, there continued to be positive evaluations of, of McLuhan. Anthony Vax recently observed that McLuhan's thought is at its best rhetorically complex, historically deep, philosophically profound, and far more extensive than the aphorisms that made him famous. He was the single most influential scholar to bring attention to communication as a field of study during the 20th century. Now, although I admit that many scholars since him have written with greater scholarly depth and cogency than McLuhan did, I think it's reasonable to claim that many academics who followed his lead and went further on media studies, such as Walter Ong and Neil Postman, and a whole generation after them, would not have achieved what they did. 
were it not for McLuhan's provocation, stimulus, excitement, and example. So a few words on Walter Ohm. He also made connections between communications, consciousness, and culture. As I said, he was taught briefly by McLuhan at St. Louis and viewed him as a teacher very positively, and later on in life, each went on to influence the other in their writing. Walter Ohm studied in France and in the UK, uh, as well as at Harvard for his PhD. He spent some years in Paris between 1950 and 53, and his room was very near that of his fellow Jesuit, Théard de Chardin. Later, Walter Ong was one of the first uh, Americans to write about Théard. After his doctorate, he went back to St. Louis to teach, where he basically stayed between 1954 and 1989. He made significant contributions to various areas of scholarship, including literary studies and linguistics, rhetoric, contemporary culture and communications, intellectual history, psychology, as well as to religion and the Jesuit ethos. For a short period, he served as advisor to President Johnson. Thomas Farrell, one of the fans of um, uh, Walter Ong, claims that Ong is unique in building a link between personal interiority, consciousness, mediated communication, and community. And another commentator, Thomas Zlatik, claims that Ong was on the front of intellectual currents, whether they be neo-Thomism, new criticism, rhetoric, <coughs> phenomenology, psychiatry, orality, media studies, cosmology, sociobiology, it seems unbelievable to list this list, anthropology, structuralism, reader response theory, deconstruction, and hermeneutics. Well, I'm, going to, I'm up to part three, part one, McLuhan. And as you can see, I'm going to pick out four themes. McLuhan, like Ong, was interested in interconnections between our senses, the media we use, and our assumptions and outlook. I'm picking out four themes only from his work. First, he pointed out how media can be understood as extensions of ourselves, and at the same time pointed out the powerful effects that communication environment has on how we think. So while, we, while the use of media, through the use of media, we impose ourselves on the world, at the same time, through the media that we engage, with which we engage, much is also imposed on us in ways that we're only inadequately aware of. The third contribution I'm going to comment on is he drew attention to the figure-ground distinction, which I will explain. And he showed how this enhances our appreciation for what we take for granted and for what we fail to see properly. And his fourth contribution was he drew attention to the functions and relations between the hemispheres of the brain, the two hemispheres. So the first of the four. In a letter in 1969 to Jacques Maritain, McLuhan noted that 
every technology is an extension of our own bodies. Each extension of ourselves creates a new human environment and an entirely new set of interpersonal relationships. Every new technology thus alters the human sensory bias, creating new areas of perception and new areas of blindness. That was McClure. An extension appears to be an amplification of an organ, a sense, or a function. Psychically, the printed book, an expression of the visual faculty, intensified perspective and a fixed point of view. Socially, the typographic extension of human beings brought in, he says, nationalism, industrialism, mass markets, universal literacy and education. In the same year, 1969, in a different letter to Maritain, he claimed that each new extension of ourselves creates a new human environment and an entirely new set of interpersonal relationships. Not only altering the, the human sensory bias, but new areas of perception, and this time, he said, and new areas of blandness. Yes, he wrote blandness, not blindness, a typical playful jolt to those who read him. In a signature style of writing in the Gutenberg Galaxy, which I think was 1962, he piles up impressionistic daubs <coughs> rather than connected analysis. He links the use of technology in extending our senses to changes in culture. He says, if a new technology extends one or more of our senses outside us into the social world, then new ratios among all our senses will occur in that particular culture. And when the sense ratios alter in a culture, then what appeared lucid before may suddenly be <coughs> opaque. And what had been vague, vague or opaque suddenly becomes translucent. So the first notion is media as extensions of our bodies and ourselves. The second notion um, is the effects of the communication environment. McLuhan saw his role as alerting people to the various unnoticed ways that our use of media altered our sense of self, of other people, and of the world around us. The regular use of new communications media did not simply add to the furniture of the world around us. Rather, it reordered all the things we think about and give ourselves to by changing how we relate to these. We tend to focus on the content being conveyed through some medium of communication, but fail to discern its character, its underlying assumptions, and its shaping power over us. And so without realizing it, subliminal and docile acceptance of media impact can turn into prisons without walls for their human users. Changes in the forms and channels of communication tend to have radical political consequences and alter our patterns of attention. 
both of which affect culture. In another letter in 1969 to the editor of a Chicago paper, U.S. Catholic, McLuhan noted that the environment is invincibly persuasive when ignored. Because of this, as early as the 1950s, as he prepared his first book, The Mechanical Bride, he had written, I quote, the problem which every educator must face today is that of immunizing the student against his, as it was, it would be that, his then, his environment. An alternative rendering of this was his succinct assertion many years later, education is ideally civil defense against media fallout. Third contribution from McClellan. One of the insightful ways that he drew attention to the media environment, how this covertly shapes uh, our attention, is, was his use of the distinction between the figure and ground. That's actually borrowed from Gestalt psychology, and there are people here who know more about that than I do. But when McClellan talked about the figure, he means what it is that we are explicitly turning our attention to. What is the focus of our attention, the topic of our investigation or discussion, or the idea or fact we're asking about, or the notion that we are considering, or the target of our mental activity. And when he refers to the ground, he refers to the foundation from which we take a stance, the background assumptions we simply take for granted, where we're looking from rather than what we're looking at. One scholar explains McLuhan's distinction like this, saying, ground is the contextual aspect of reality that is not directly in the focus of attention, whereas figure is the object that is the direct center of attention. Every situation contains a figure or object of attention and a ground or the area of inattention from which all potential figures emerge and into which they recede. And figure and ground interplay with one another. And the fourth contribution from McLuhan, the two hemispheres of the brain. He became, McLuhan became increasingly intrigued by the literature on the two hemispheres of the brain, the right and the left, which appear to have different but complementary functions, the left being more analytical and the right being more holistic. He claimed in a letter to Jacqueline Tirrett, um, written in 1968, that he had been using a two-hemisphere approach when he referred to the written and the oral, the visual and the acoustic, the medium and the message, as examples of the figure-ground distinction. And he went on, during the past century, there's been a new electronic milieu or environment which automatically pushes the right hemisphere into a more dominant position than it's held in the Western world since the invention of the phonetic alphabet. My work has been a dialogue between the two hemispheres in which the characteristics of the right hemisphere, 
um, are given so much recognition that I have been unintelligible to the left hemisphere people. That's an excuse for lack of clarity. The right hemisphere covers the field of perception in its entirety, whereas the left hemisphere concentrates on one aspect at a time. Gutenberg attaches itself to the left hemisphere. The oral, the acoustic, and consequently the electric, to the right hemisphere. And he went on with one of those pithy and provocative statements. Our school system, like our Catholic hierarchy, is entirely dominated by the left side of the brain. We could have a seminar just about that sentence. <laughs> now, there are major implications for educators and for the church if the role of the two hemispheres is properly appreciated. Implications which were only beginning to wake up to, I think. The best work that's known to me, uh, post-McLuhan, on the different contributions of the two hemispheres is called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, one of those rare scholars who became an expert in English literature and in neuros and in the study of the brain. Um, the book came out originally in hardback in 2009. I think it was Yale University Press. Some of it's beyond me, much of it's beyond me, the science. But it's re-reading of Western culture in the light of the scientific analysis of the <coughs> functions of the brain is mind-blowing. It's a book I would put on, the par, on a par with Charles Taylor's A Secular Age uh, for its contribution to understanding our culture. So even though McLuhan's thoughts on this topic were much less detailed, much less rigorous, much less coherent, much less strongly founded than those of McGilchrist, I think McLuhan does deserve credit for his prophetic recognition of the need for us to appreciate how the two hemispheres operate in opening up for us different facets of the world. Okay, part two of part three, Walter R. Walter Arm has argued, this is the first of his contributions that I'm going to focus on. He argues that Socrates' complaints at the end of the Phaedrus about writing, that it diminishes memory, that writing lacks interaction, that it disseminates at random, that it disembodies speakers and, and hearers. Walter Arm says these complaints about writing are similar to late 20th century worries about computers, and similar to 15th century worries about printing. Not only, as Ong observes, might we apply this worry to computers, it's been lamented with regard to many other technological innovations in, compute, in communication. However, despite the need to be alert for how our technology can come to colonize our thinking, Ong offers a balanced assessment of technology. He says, technology can dehumanize us and at times has dehumanized us, but it can also humanize us. Indeed, technology is absolutely indispensable for many of our absolutely central, uh, central humanizing achievements. The use of technology can enrich the human psyche, enlarge the human spirit, set it free, 
and intensify its inner life. Ong's primary concern is less the material nature of the hardware used than the habits of mind and the human relationships brought about by modes of communication. Second contribution, the sensorium, which I've already mentioned. In the presence of the word, series lectures, the Terry lectures he, that were published in um, 1967, Ong describes the sensorium as the complete set of our bodily senses working together as an operational complex, explaining that the way that we use uh, our senses and the relative weight we uh, attribute to each of them has a different configuration according to the culture in which we find ourselves. He says, cultures vary greatly in their exploitation of the various senses and in the way they relate their conceptual apparatus to the various senses. A given culture brings a person, uh, brings a person to organize his sensorium by attending to some types of perception more than others, by making an issue of certain ones while relatively neglecting um, other ones. This is not to deny the fact that our senses provide both opportunities for, as well as constraints on, cultural developments. The influence between culture and senses is reciprocal. Our world is simultaneously both personal, as constructed by us, and objective, given to us. Ong was saying there then that the, our, our sensorial organization, the way that we deploy our senses in a given culture at any particular time, might lead us to over specialize in certain areas of reality and to neglect other areas of reality. Uh, third point from Ong. Following on from this, Ong draws attention to three characteristics of media. He shows how any particular medium of communication addresses and activates one or more of the different senses of sight, sound, hearing, touch, and taste, and affecting social engagement and perception. And then he links different media with particular associated ways of managing information, including how it's stored, retrieved, and disseminated and the effects that has on culture and developing systems of meaning. And then third, he shows how the use of different media frames the patterns of relationships and authority in a culture. Fourth contribution. He commented on shifts that occurred throughout the centuries um, Shifts in culture brought about by shifts in communication media. So he wrote about shifts from oral cultures to writing cultures, then from a print-based culture to an electronic one. In one way or another, he said, <coughs> codes modify what they encode. Print culture seem to downgrade the role of oral communication and lead to the forgetting of a huge, the huge importance of sound and to forget that words are ultimately given their meaning by a non-verbal context. 
Though all the senses play a necessary part in our lives, sound was particularly important for Om. For him, sound is a special sensory key to interiority. For him, sight presents surfaces, distances the onlooker from what is looked upon, and privileges clarity and distinctiveness. But in contrast, for R, sound is a unifying sense. It brings together the emitter and the receiver, and its ideal is harmony rather than distinctiveness or separation. Word, he said, as sound signals interiority and mystery, and a certain inaccessibility even in intimacy. And the fifth and last of these brief contributions from Ong I want to refer to, um, his understanding of communication. Similar as was the case with McCurn, Ong did not view communication as a matter of the transmission of a message. Nor did he consider language to be a, a neutral vehicle for the transfer of information that had already been arrived at. Rather, for Ong, language is a negotiation of meanings between human persons, a negotiation that is open-ended and without terms. And furthermore, given that all interpretation is interdependent with the communication medium through which the negotiation is conducted, then different communications media engage the senses in different proportions, with different effects on our processes of thinking, our psychic drives, and even our personality structures. What matters for Ong is not the sharing of information, but a sharing of selves. Because what matters in human communication is not the, the exchange of messages, but a sharing of interiors. Here, honesty is not seen as separate from one's personhood or character or actions in the way that sometimes truth can seem to be something out there and distinguishable from us. Well, since he's died, Ong's claims about sound and the nature of orality in culture have come in for considerable criticism. However, even if one accepts that with regard to sound and orality, Ong is flawed in some respects, I don't think this need prevent us from being enriched by his insights into the mysterious yet real connections between the history of communication media and human receptivity to God's revelation. So that brings me to what might be some of the implications for Christian faith. I'm going to limit myself to just three from each of these two thinkers. First, for, um, for, for McLuhan. If religion was, for McLuhan, a source of integration and inspiration in life, he was always adamant that Christians must be open to learning from secular disciplines and thinkers. In various letters, he talked about the importance of learning, for example, from Carl Gustav Jung, from modern anthropology, from psychology, 
from management theorist, theorist Peter Drucker's books. In fact, so willing was Marshall McLuhan to take on board new thinking across a wide range of disciplines that he might be accused of being insufficiently critical of what he was assimilating and of lacking a parallel deepening of his understanding of the theological sources in the development and coherence of his own faith tradition. Second uh, implication from McLuhan, despite this possible weakness of superficiality, McLuhan was not slow to assert in a letter in 1946, it seems obvious to me that we must confront the secular in its most consist confident manifestations and with its own terms and postures to shock it into an awareness of its confusion, its illiteracy, and the terrifying drift of its logic. There is no need to mention Christianity, he said. It is enough to be known that the operator of the critiques is a Christian. The job must be confronted on every front, every phase of the press, book rackets, music, cinema, education, economics. Actually, C.S. Lewis at the same time was saying something very similar about the need for Christians to engage with uh, secular culture, but not banging out loud the Christian drum, just as it were implicitly as a Christian. Third contribution from uh, uh, McClure. Because of his insights into the effect of communication media on consciousness and culture, McLuhan was able to offer some striking, if sometimes rather acid, comments about developments in church history. Here are just a few examples. The early church began with the liaison with the Greco-Roman and the alphabetic. Ever since, the church has made inseparable the propagation of the faith and of, Greek, uh, and of Greco-Roman culture, thus ensuring that only a tiny segment of humankind would ever be Christian. Then he said, there was nobody at the Council of Trent who had any interest in the shaping power of technology, in creating private judgment on the one hand, and of mass <clears throat> massive centralist bureaucracy on the other hand. There was nobody at Vatican I, or Vatican II, who showed any understanding of the electro-technical thing in reshaping the psyche and the culture of mankind. Since Vatican I and Vatican II, the Catholic bureaucracy has moved resolutely into the 19th century. Uh, um, I omitted to say, actually, there was a time when he was on the Vatican um, pontifical some, some body to do with communications. But they, they never really properly followed that up. Um, he, he, said, he said that last point, that our Vatican, uh, the, the church moved resolutely back into the 19th century in a letter to Frank Sheed, the Catholic apologist and publisher. And in the same letter, he said, of the councils of, of Trent and Vatican I, by the way, he wasn't, being, he wasn't disagreeing with the decisions of the council. McLuhan was a very orthodox Catholic doctrinally. He said, the policies adopted at these councils manifested the spirit of Don Quixote, who donned the latest print technology as his armour and motive, and rode off valiantly into the, dark, into the Middle Ages. 
He was calling for a much deeper understanding of how communication media modify cultural understanding. He lamented in one of a series of interviews he held with the French catechist Pierre Bavard in 1977, I do not think that the powerful forces imposed on us by electricity have been considered at all by theologians and liturgists. And in another interview with Baba, he, he claimed Latin, Latin wasn't the victim of Vatican II, it was done in by introducing the microphone. <laughs> he, he does build a case for that, actually, about the difference that using a microphone in church makes. As a factor influencing change in church, technology is often ignored. <coughs> well, as, as for Walter Ong, so I'm on part four, section B, three, three important contributions which have implications for Christianity today. First, his treatment of the need to engage with modernity. Second, his analysis of the effect of the communication system in which we find ourselves immersed. And third, the centrality of presence. So first, four years before Vatican II opened, one can see Ong's cautious move towards advocating a positive approach to the modern world. He said, as, as man's ideas of what the world is undergo radical revision and enlargement, the Christian mind must make some fundamental adjustments in thinking about his religion itself but he must make them sensitively and within the economy of faith, not the adapting of revelation to the facts, but the integration of the new facts with revelation, not a new understanding of faith and of God in the light of new discoveries, but a new understanding of new discoveries in the light of faith and in relationship to God. I would qualify that myself slightly by saying surely this relationship is reciprocal, working both ways, rather than unilateral, for God is the source of knowledge, whether from above or from below. Ong does acknowledge that the Church has elaborated her understanding of her mission, and indeed come to some new understanding of this mission, insofar as the relationship of man to the universe has been clarified through the scientific work of the modern world. He continues this line when he expresses the view that thinkers in the church must relate secular knowledges to theology and her teachings. The church needs to be present to secular learning and to have it present to her in order to realize her mission. In fulfilling her mission to bring the entire world to Christ, the church must reflect not only on divine revelation, but also upon creation itself. In an article written midway through the council, he acknowledged, I quote him again, our present advances in theology, in the explication of divine revelation itself, have depended in great part upon advances in secular thought. <clears throat> advances, for example, in anthropology, sociology, cultural history, and a literary history. Second implication from Ong. I've already mentioned his treatment of the sensorium and his emphasis on sound and his comment on the significance of moving from one type of communications medium to another. 
Like McLuhan, he was keen to point out the over-reliance of the church on modes of thought facilitated by print, print culture and the need to attend to a broader range of media in order to receive and share the diverse ways God reaches out to us. He observed in 1967 that post-Tridentine Catholic theologians who were also post-Gutenberg men received a, conceived of tradition by analogy with a written text. And then he went on to say, but the word of God comes to man and is present among men within an evolving communication system. End quotation. I think he teaches us, Walter Ong, that the church must become aware of the ways that our modes and media of communication shape our perceptions, our assumptions, our priorities and our practices, and thus they modify the effectiveness and influence uh, the reception of our mission in the world. And the last of his uh, implications of faith I'm going to comment on here um, is he reflected very deeply on the notion of presence and the ways that God is present to us, the ways that we are present to one another, and the central importance of sound and the voice in all of this. He notes, God is thought of always as speaking to human beings, not as writing to them. Sound resonates within and touches us in deeper ways than sight. Sound provides a vital access to the presence of others. According to Ong's way of thinking, knowledge is about presence rather than possession. Our faith life might be revitalized by attending to how sound and voice are central to presence. The privileging of sight, reinforced later by printing, and the strong association between faith and fixed doctrine tended in many people's minds to reduce faith to assent to beliefs and to reduce obedience to compliance. Ong's restoration of sound and voice as central to presence should prompt us to revisit the roots and the meaning of obedience, which means deep listening to the other, including the other with a big O, and acting upon what is learnt in that listening. So in conclusion, part five, very brief. The two thinkers that have been the subject of this paper alert us to the need to be very conscious of the nature and the effects, the possibilities and the limitations of the communication media we employ or in which we are immersed. These technological media are part of the environment in which we swim alongside our biophysical and our symbolic environment. All three aspects of our environment, that is the, the technological, the biophysical and the in symbolic, they interact in complex ways. Our religious faith and its expression cannot help but be affected by this triple environment. As the catechist Michael Warren wrote in 1999, when our practice of religious language ignores the material conditions of our seeing, 
That language practice colludes in enabling the conditions of our seeing to go unnoticed. My comment on that is when, the, when this happens, when, when we lose sight of the conditions of our seeing, of what's framing our seeing, when this happens, it becomes harder to discern which aspects of our faith have become distorted by the fruits of our own labours, which aspects of our faith are of the essence and which are peripheral, which belong to another age and which need reinterpretation or revitalising today. So my last word is this. It would be wise for Christian teachers and Christian leaders to learn from McLuhan and Ong and those who carry forward their work to learn how to read our communication environment together with its associated habits of attention and sensibility so that we can continue to take our living tradition forward, arming our fidelity with cultural discernment and imagination. Thank you very much.